Hey guys, welcome to Redemption. My name is Byron, and uh, I get the great privilege to serve here as the lead pastor and the church planter. If you're a guest, I want to say welcome. Thank you so much for hanging out with us, for taking your Sunday morning and spending it here at Redemption. Uh, we're going to continue our series, James, Bold Words from Jesus' Brother. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of James chapter 2, and we're going to look at some bold words that James says, and the two words he gives us is faith and works. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into the scriptures. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Lord, that through a miracle, Jesus was born, and Jesus lived the sinless and perfect life, and that Jesus substituted himself as our sacrifice. So through Jesus, our lives can be changed. Father God, I pray that today lives would genuinely be changed, that you would meet us here, and that the word of God would be pleasing to us and profitable, and it would, it would encourage us, it would challenge us, it would inspire us to live new lives, a life of faith, a life that when people see us, when they see the work that you're doing in us, Lord, that it would transpire in a great work in our community, in our city, in our family, and it would overflow into every other aspect of our lives. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Jesus is God. Do you believe that? Jesus is Lord. Do you believe that? Jesus is our King. Do you know that? Do you, do you believe that? Do you know who Jesus is? That Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, and that Jesus is coming again one day. Do you, do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is, is our healer, that Jesus is our redeemer, that Jesus is our savior? The most important question, the most important thing that you need to know is who is Jesus? Do you know who Jesus is? Jesus is Lord. Do you believe that? Everything that I just said is absolutely true. Problem was, I didn't believe it. And I could tell you all of those things. I could tell you all about them. I could tell you all about what Jesus did, but I, I didn't believe it. I I wasn't a Christian. I didn't have true saving faith. Now, my story is this. I grew up in the church. I was raised by my grandparents who loved the Lord, who loved me, and they loved their church. And one of the best things that my grandparents ever did for me was to introduce me to a church at a very young age. Parents, that's very important for you, to introduce your children into a church at a very young age. And I was raised in the church, and I went to church when I was a kid. Like I went to Sunday school, I, I went to children's church, and I, I grew up in the church, and I went to youth group, and I prayed the prayer, and I walked the aisle, and I was baptized about the age of six. The problem was, is I wasn't really a Christian. I didn't have true faith. I didn't have saving faith. I didn't have a genuine faith. I wasn't really saved. In the midst of all of that, I still didn't have true faith. Now, if you were to ask me, Byron, do you believe in God? My answer would be, Yes. Yes, I, I believe in God. And I could quote you the Bible and I could pray for you and had a proverb for every single problem that I had. And I could help you and I could, I could tell you about who Jesus is. He lived, he died, he rose, and he's coming again. The problem was I didn't have this true saving faith. Now I grew up in the church and more than that, I went to a Christian school. And so I went to a Christian school where we would, we would pray in class and we would pray for other students in class. And we'd gather around a flagpole and we'd pray to, for our nation. And, and, and we'd read our Bibles and we'd study the Bible and we'd memorize the Bible. And we'd get gold stickers for quoting Bible verses. And we'd have classes over the Bible. And then we would go on mission trips and we'd teach other kids about the Bible. All of my friends were Christians. I grew up in this safe and comfortable conformity Christian culture. But the only problem was I was not really a Christian. 
I didn't have this saving faith. It wasn't true. It wasn't real. It wasn't genuine. And it became evident when I was 15 years old. When I was 15 years old, I, I started to face some of life's difficulties. And I, I turned to the church. When I was faced with depression or doubt or despair, when I started to make friends who had opposing worldviews and I was having a crisis of faith and I, I didn't know how to navigate through this. And so I, I went to the people that I thought were there to help me and the only people that I trusted. And I, I turned to the church for help and instead of help, I got hurt. Rejection, loneliness, and isolation. I literally remember walking out after a conversation with one man and I said, God, if these are your people and if this is what you're about, I want nothing to do with it. And that's the day that I realized I didn't believe. And I rejected Jesus, and I, I walked away from the church. But I still stayed. I, I still stayed, and for a couple of years, I learned how to fake it. I learned how to put a smile on, wear the mask, and I could give you good Christian truism, so I'll pray for you, and here's a nice little Bible verse, and here's a Christian t-shirt, and oh yeah, everything's going to be fine. And if you were to ask me during that time, when I was faking it, are you a Christian? My answer still would have been yes. Yes, I, I am a Christian, right? Here's all the things that Jesus did. He lived, he died, blah, 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 blah. I could quote to you all those things. The problem was in my heart, I didn't love Jesus. I didn't serve Jesus. I didn't follow Jesus. I wasn't in relationship with Jesus because I didn't want anything to do with him or his, his people. But if you were to ask me, my answer would have still been yes. I still believe in God. And that happens up until about the age of 19. When I was 19 year, years old, I, I met a girl her name's Ashley, and I met this girl named, named Ashley, and we both weren't following Jesus, and it was very evident in our lives by this time. And so we started hanging out, and we started partying, and we started spending some time together, and things were going pretty good, and I thought, wow, you know, I really like this girl. So we started, we started dating, and one night, several months after we started dating, she, she called me kind of late in the evening, and I, I picked up the phone and said, hey, babe, what's going on? And then she was crying, and I thought, oh, no, what did I do? Because 19-year-old guys are dumb, and they do a lot of things shamefully that make girls cry. And so I was like, what did I do? What did I do? She said, well, nothing, but um, I, started, um, I started listening to some music, and then all of a sudden, a Christian song came on the radio, and I started to cry. And so then I, I found one of my brother's worship albums, and I put it on. And then I, I started to cry again. And then that led me to start reading my Bible. And then I found myself praying. And I've never had this desire to pray. And then I started praying. And I think that I want to become a Christian. I thought, oh, that's a terrible idea. Like, that's not why we started. We had nonverbal mutual agreement that we were not going to be going to church or following Jesus. And she's ruining this. And then she said, she said, will you take me to church? I thought, I've spent the last five years of my life running from the church. The last thing that I want to do is go back to the church. But she was cute, and so I said yes. <clears throat> Praise God for cute girls and churches. And so I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll go to church. Now, in my mind, I thought, this is a one-time thing. Like, we'll go to church once, we'll visit, we'll fill out the little connect card, but we're not really going to get involved. We're just probably going to go back to living our own lives and doing whatever it was that we were going to do. And... So I picked her up and, and, and we went to church. Now, when I went back to this church, it was the same church that I, I, I grew up in. I went back and literally nothing had changed. Like in five, six years, it was exactly the same. Okay, the people, the people, right? Like I had nothing in common with any of these 
people. The building, it was outdated. Uh, the coffee, probably burnt. Right? The, the, the music, not very good. The sermon, to be honest, I don't even really remember. Okay? I, I don't know what it was. So I went back and nothing had changed when I went to the church. So I'm standing there in worship. And we're standing and kind of doing the rocking back and forth thing. Right? And I look over and, and Ashley's worshiping. And, and she, has her, she has her hands raised. Okay, probably more like this because she was Baptist. So <laughs> she has her hands raised and she's crying. And she's praying and she smiles. And in a moment, I saw God change this girl's life. Right before my very eyes, I saw the Spirit of God just come right over her and change her and right before my eyes. And in a moment, in an instant, I believed. I believed. I said, this is real. This is true. This is genuine. I went from someone who was hating the church, rejecting Jesus, to someone who wanted to be like him. And, and I saw it work in here and then flipped in my heart. In my heart, it just became alive. And I, I believed. And I can tell you this. It wasn't the building. Definitely wasn't the building. Okay? It, it wasn't the music. It wasn't the coffee, it wasn't the people, and it wasn't the sermon. I don't remember any of that, but here's what I do remember. I remember seeing her life changed, and in a moment, I, I believed. I went from being a person who was so angry and so isolated and so rejecting of faith and of the church and someone who wanted to live and live my own life. I went to a person who wanted to live for Jesus now, and my new faith was evident because the way it impacted my life, that my life literally began to change. And I, and I know this because I found myself reading my Bible. And I'm like, I didn't even like reading my Bible when I was a kid. And now I have this longing and desire to read my Bible and, and to pray and to, to, to be in community and to join a small group and begin to tithe. And I started getting involved in the church and I became a member of the church. And the people that I was around, they became brothers and sisters and, and they became family. And I began to grow in my faith and it impacted every other aspect of my life. And God literally changed who I was and it was evident to everyone who knew me. And I tell you that to tell you this. Today, James is writing to me. He's writing to 19-year-old me sitting in that chair that day. James is writing to you. Some of you, you're in this room and you, you grew up in church. You grew up in church and, and you know a couple of Bible verses and you can string a prayer together and, and you prayed a prayer and you walked an aisle. Maybe you were baptized at six years old. And, and so you come into the church and you think, oh, that's all there is. Okay, James is writing to you and he's saying, there is more to faith than that. See, James Church was a lot like the church that you probably grew up in. That it was a church filled with the exact same people every single week. And they would come to church and they would park their camel in the same parking stall and they would walk in and they would come in. They'd sit down in the exact same seat and they would think, oh, everything's fine. Right, I gave my life to Jesus, here's my Bible verses, here's my 10%, and God's not really going to expect or ask me to do anything because now I'm saved and I can just live my life however I want, and I think I'm a pretty good, holy, spiritual, moral person, and I'm pretty good. And James is like, you are not a Christian. You think you are, but you're not. There's more to faith than this. So now that I've got your attention... Let's go ahead and read the Bible. Here's what James says. What good is it, 
my brothers. Okay, so he's talking to us collectively as a church. Brothers, sisters, those who claim to be Christians. And so there's a familiar relationship that we have. And how many of you have brothers or sisters? Right, brothers and sisters, right? You love them, but sometimes they say some hard words, right? Sometimes they have hard conversations with you. So James today is going to have a really hard conversation with us. And so James, James speaks. He says, what good is it there, my brothers? If someone says that he has faith, to trust, to know, to believe, you have faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? That word save, very important. What does it mean for us to be saved? That we are saved from Satan, from sin, from hell, from death, from the grave, and from the wrath of God. That we are saved, and that we are saved by God, to God, from God, and that we are saved for God. And that this great work of salvation takes place because of the work in which Jesus has done. What does it mean for us to be saved? Basically, James is asking, how can we tell if someone is actually a Christian? How can we tell? Is it because they said that they were? Is it because that they, they said, oh, I prayed the prayer, and, and here's, the, here's, the, here, here, here's the cross necklace that I have, and here's the Jesus bumper sticker on the back of my car, so that must make me a Christian, right? How can we tell if someone is actually a Christian? Is it because that they said they, that they were? Okay, James is going to let us know that there's more to faith than what you think. Okay, did you know that people can say things about themselves that aren't true? Did you know that? I know this comes shocking to a lot of you. Right? People can say things that not, aren't actually true. Like, I, I'm a basketball player. No, I'm not, right? I'm five foot nine on a good day. Right? I, can't, I can't run up and down the court without wheezing, and I probably couldn't dunk over a five-year-old girl. Like, it's just not going to happen, okay? Some people can say things that aren't actually true. And some people claim to be Christians, and they're not. Some people can say something and it not actually generally be true. Some people say that they have faith, but they don't have the saving faith. Instead, they have a counterfeit faith. So James is going to give us two bold words. Those bold words are faith and works. Now, faith, to know, to trust, to believe, and then works. Works is the way in which we can tell if a saving faith is true or if it's a counterfeit. Works is the way we can tell. How many of you have ever seen a counterfeit $100 bill? Anyone? Anyone ever see a counterfeit? Yeah, when I waited tables, um, the, the goal every night was to make $100. Like, if I could make 100 bucks waiting tables, man, that was, that, that was a good night. And so one night, I, I made $100, and, um, and I exchanged. I would get in the 100 bucks, and I, I would go to the bar, and I exchanged my 20s, 5s, and 10s to the bar, and then they would give me a nice, cool, crisp $100 bill. So I, I put it in my pocket. I'd feel like I'm oh, pretty good, you know. So the next day I would go to the bank teller and, and I would deposit it into my checking account. And I, I slid her the hundred bucks and she said, I can't accept this. I said, Why not? Why couldn't you accept that? And then she took that little marker and she, she ran it across the top of the dollar bill and she said, it's a counterfeit. I said, huh, well, let me see that. I, I want to look at this. So she handed me the $100 and the counterfeit, and I held them up next to each other. Now, on, on, on first glance, they looked exactly the same, right? Both rectangular, right? They're, they're green, right? And, and Benjamin Franklin's face, you know, looked just like a normal $100 bill. I was like, I don't understand. And so she said, look at it closer. So I held the, the money, and I looked at it, and I felt it. And on closer inspection, there were things that were just off. Just didn't, just didn't line up. So, so the, the paper, it didn't have the same weight, and it didn't have that same feel to it. 
And the, the colors, they, they didn't really match. And the holograms on the back, they, they weren't necessarily the same. And, and, and they began to smudge. And I realized, yeah, closer inspection, it's not real. Some people have counterfeit faith. Some people's faith, it's worthless. It's not real. It's not genuine. It's not authentic. Instead, it's a counterfeit. And so what James is going to say is, I want, you to, I want you to look at me. I want you to listen to me. I want you to take a closer look and inspection of what you claim, and let's see if it's actually true. So I want you to hear what James is saying. He's going to give us two forms of counterfeit faith. He's going to give us one form of authentic faith. The first counterfeit faith, James says, is dead faith. Some people have dead faith. Here's what he says in verse 15. If a brother or sister, so this is a Christian. This is someone that you know. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, so you see someone you know someone who can't afford to clothe their children. Or they wear the same clothes every single day, and it's tattered, and they're worn, and they're ratted, and they're on hard times. And you know winter is coming up, and their kids don't have a coat, and you see them waiting at the bus stop shivering, and you know they're in need. This is someone who's sitting in this room right now. This is someone who's on the serve team next to you. This is someone who might be in your community group. This is someone that you work with or someone who is in college with you, and you see them, and you notice, and you recognize their, their need. You see that someone is poorly clothed, and that they are lacking in their daily food. So they're starving, they're hungry, and they don't know where their next meal is going to come from. This could be the, the single mom working two jobs, or maybe it's the guy who's out of work, not because he's lazy, but because he can't find a job, and the end of the month is coming up, and you know money is tight, and you know they're on hard times, and they don't know where their next meals come from, and they can't buy groceries for their family, and you're in community with them. You know them. You see them. You have their name, and you say to them, notice, you don't do anything. You just say something. And you're not, I'm not really going to help, right? But, but I will say say something, because I would just be too much to see him and not say something. So I have to say something. What am I going to say? Go in peace. Go in peace. Be warmed and be filled. Right? Isn't that a nice, pithy statement? Right? Oh, go, go in peace. Okay, be warmed. I know you're naked and you can't afford a coat, so be warmed. Right? May, the Lord, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. Maybe his shining face will keep you warm. Right? Oh, oh you're, you're hungry? Oh, Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers, buddy. Yeah, good vibes. Send my good vibes your way. Maybe you could eat those. No! He says, what good is that? It's not good at all. It doesn't do anything. What difference does that make? You can change your Facebook profile all you want and try to raise awareness, but you're not doing anything, and so it doesn't count. What good is that? It's no good. It's no good at all because faith without works is, what's the word? It's dead. Some people have dead faith. Churches are filled with people who have dead faith. And I think that's the reason that so many churches are dying. It's because we have preachers promulgating some message of Christless Christianity and a false assurance that's all lip service and no lifestyle. It's dead faith. It doesn't count. It's not real. And we're selling it and people are buying it. And we're just sending people straight to hell. It's not real. That's not Christianity. It's not the way it works. Some of you right now, you're like, Byron, you don't know me. You, you, don't, you don't know me. You don't know my heart. Right? I, I mean, me and Jesus, we have a personal relationship. Okay, let's talk about that. Say a guy comes into the church. He's about 
40 years old. And we hang out after a gathering one day, and he's telling me, oh, hey, you know, my wife, and I notice the ring, and I say, oh, you're married. I would love to meet your wife. Is she here today? No, she's not here. Oh, well, where is she? She's like, I don't really know. Like, what do you mean you don't know where your wife is? Well, I haven't seen her since the wedding day. Wait, what? You haven't seen your wife since the wedding day? Uh, no, no. It's like, I don't know how to tell you this, bud, but I don't think you're married. No, I'm totally married. I don't, think you're, I don't think you're in a relationship. No, I'm totally in a relationship, personal relationship. I, I love, no, I don't, I don't think you love your wife. How, how could you say that? Right, right? Okay. <clears throat> you, you, we had the wedding. We had a ceremony. We, we kissed. We exchanged rings. Right? She said, I do. I said, I do. The state gave us a certificate. Right? We're, we're totally married. You might have had a ceremony, but you didn't actually have a marriage because that's not what a marriage is. What? You can't judge my heart. Okay, <clears throat> let's figure this out. Your heart, right? Okay, so you love your wife. Absolutely. Love her with all your heart, all of my heart. Okay, great. Let's, let's figure this out. Do you pray for your wife? No. Okay, do you give to your wife? No. Do you buy her flowers? No. Do you take her out for eat? No. Okay, do, you, do, you, do you provide for your family? No. Do you... Do you go to church with her? No. Do you, do you take care of her? No. Do you protect her? No. Do you speak life into her? No. Okay, you don't love your wife. Yes, I do. I love her. No, love is not what you say. Love is what you do. You say you love her, but it's evident that you don't. You don't know my heart. I do know your heart. Your heart has overflowed into your life, and everyone else can see it. You don't have a relationship. Now, some of you are like, oh, Byron, like, that, that's, that's intense, right? Well, James is actually saying the same thing that Jesus says, that we are faithless because we're actually fruitless. This is how Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 7, I believe. This is what he says. He says, if a brother or, wait, slide, slide. Okay, so he says, he says that a tree will be known by its what? Fruits, okay? So a healthy tree produces healthy fruit. Okay, a bad tree produces bad fruit. Okay, and some people have bad fruit. They're dead roots that produce bad fruit. Some of you are like, I, I don't have bad fruit. I don't have any fruit. No fruit is bad fruit, just so you know. It's because your roots are dead. You're rooted in something that's not real. It doesn't give life. It's not flourishing. You're dying because you're rooted in morality or spirituality or good works or just your Christian tradition is dead. It's not going to save you. So your roots are dead. And when Jesus comes back, two trees in the orchard, one's living, one's dead. One gets chopped down and thrown into the fire. Because it's not real. And they're both still standing there. They're both still sitting in the orchard. When the wind blows, their branches go back and forth. But one has fruit and one doesn't. Some people have dead faith. It's not saving. It's not real. It doesn't count. James is kind of intense, right? It's going to get worse. Next. Some people have dead faith. And then he goes on and says, some people have demonic faith. Okay? But someone will say, hypothetically, because people like to argue and, and you're listening to this and you're like, that, that's not me, of course, because I've, I've read a couple of books and I've watched a YouTube video and I had a conversation with my friends and this is what our worldview is. And, you know, some will say, hypothetically, because church folk don't like to argue. But some will say, 
You have your faith, and I have my works. Oh, Byron, you have your faith. That's really nice. You believe in God, and you know, so do I, and you really take this very seriously, and it seems like you're, you're getting a little uh, excited, and you're, yeah, you're passionate, but, but you have your faith, and I, but I have my, my works. And I think that if we're just good people, and we smile, and we treat people kindly, and we try hard, and we do our best, and we click our heels and think happy thoughts, then we'll go off to Never Ever Land, and we can paint with all the colors of the wind, say la vie, right? You have your faith, and I have my, I have my works. James says, all right, let's put your money where your mouth is. Right? This is what he says. He says that, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So you believe in God. Okay, so you, you, you have some understanding of a God. Like, oh yeah, I believe in God. I'm sure he's out there somewhere. I'm sure he's real, but, but you know, I can just kind of live my own life. He says, you believe in God? Great. Even the demons believe in God congratulations, you have enough faith to qualify for you to be a demon. Even the demons believe in God, and they shudder, and oftentimes we don't even move. They shudder at the presence of God. Even the demons believe in God. You know what I find very interesting is as I'm, as I'm reading ahead and getting ready for our sermon series starting next year in the book of Mark, I'm studying, and you know what I find really interesting? In that nobody knew who Jesus was when Jesus was here. Where Jesus was out preaching, teaching, healing, performing miracles, nobody knew or had a clue about who Jesus was. I mean, Jesus' own family, right, they denied him. Jesus' brother James, right, he thought James, Jesus was crazy and dishonored him in front of large crowds. Okay, whenever Jesus would preach, the, the religious leaders, they hated him. The Roman government opposed him, wanted to murder him. Even the disciples denied him. Nobody knew who Jesus was. When Jesus would preach, a large, crowd, a large crowd would gather around and they'd say, who is this man? How can this man preach with such authority? We don't know who he is. You know who the only people who knew who Jesus was? It's the demons. The demons are the only people in the Gospels before the resurrection who ever made a proclamation of the lordship of Jesus. It, 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 was, it was the demons. And some people, we have a demonic faith. Friends, some people have dead faith. It's not real. It's some vague mental assent, understanding or knowledge of who God is based in tradition or their morality or the way that they were raised. Some people have a dead faith, which is all mental assent. Other people have demonic faith. Friends, I had demonic faith for 20 years. For 20 years, I could tell you who Jesus was. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose. But I didn't love Jesus. I didn't know Jesus. I didn't serve Jesus. It wasn't evident in my life. My faith was without works, and so my faith was dead. Some people have dead faith, demonic faith, and neither of those are saving faith. And so I can tell that I kind of struck a nerve. So let me, let me explain this a little bit more. How do we know if someone has demonic faith? Just hearing that, you're like, demon, right? How do we know if someone has a demonic faith. No, it's not pitchforks, growing a horn, and foaming out the mouth. I wish it was that easy, because it would make my job a lot more simple. But just to be honest, demonic faith is much more nefarious than that, because a demonic faith will infiltrate the church, and it will cause people to think, because they have some moralistic, therapeutic, deistic life, they're saved. It's way more nefarious, because it hides in our culture, it hides in our church, and it hides in our heart. So how can we tell if somebody has a demonic faith? Okay, There's a couple of ways in which we can identify it. First is, they have information okay, without transformation. 
Do demons know who Jesus is? Yes. Demons know who Jesus is. They were with him in eternity past. They were gathered around him in full glory as the second member of the Trinity, gathered around the throne. And then they rebelled against him and they were cast down with a third of them. And then demons were here in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve, they watched as Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan in the garden. They were there and they saw Jesus in his earthly life and ministry. And they know who Jesus is. Do demons know who Jesus is? Yes. Okay, do demons become Christians? No. Demons do not become Christians. They can't be saved. They can't be changed. They can't be transformed. They have all this perfect knowledge, but there is no transformation in their life. There is no change in their life. Now, if a demon were to write a systematic theology, be 100% correct. If a demon were to teach a a doctrine class in a seminary, their doctrine would be 100% correct. And they can take the test of, of faith and they could get a perfect score. Do you believe, or is Jesus real? Check. Is Jesus God? Check. Is Jesus living? Check. Is Jesus rose from the dead? Check. Is he the Holy One, the Son of God? Check. And they can still fail the test because the test of faith is not fill in the blank. The test of faith is fill in the life. It's not what you know. It's also what you do. Let me give you a couple of verses just to kind of highlight this for you. How demons are the only ones who know who Jesus is. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, and Mark chapter 5. There was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. So the demon knows who Jesus is. I have knowledge of you. I know who you are are the Holy One of God. So the demon proclaims faith. The second one is Mark chapter 5. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. I find this so interesting. Listen to this. A demon is praying to God against Jesus because he's being tormented by Jesus. Isn't Isn't that insane? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me, for he... Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Do demons know? Yes. They have information, but they are never transformed. The second one is they have affinity without affection. What's interesting is that demons were keenly, keenly aware and drawn to the life of Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, they were there. They were gathered around. What's so, what's so amazing is that in the in the book of Genesis or in the Old Testament altogether, demons are hardly ever mentioned. You don't get a lot about them. Prince of the air, you know, Prince of Persia, a couple of strongholds and things like that. Not a lot of mentions. And then you go forward to the New Testament and you read the book of Acts. They, they show up as the church is being born and you got you know, one guy who's trying to cast demons out and they come and they beat him up and you see a couple of things like that. And then the epistles, you get a couple of vague references. But In the Gospels, they're almost on every single page. I mean, you can't read the Gospel narratives without encountering someone who has been possessed or is oppressed by a demon. They're literally on every page. Everywhere Jesus goes, they're gathered around him. They have this strange affinity towards him. But you know what? They have no affection. They say, you are the Holy One, the Son of God. You are the Son of, you are Jesus, the, the Lord Most High. But they don't say, and we love you. And they don't say, we want to be like you. And we're so glad you came to earth and that you would be here present with us. They don't say any of that. They have affinity and they don't have 
any affection. And then number three, they have rebellion without repentance. You are the Holy One, and we're not going to listen to you. You are, the, you are the Son of God Most High, and I'm not going to change. And I don't care what you say. I don't care how you tell me. I don't care what you do. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to change. I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to do my own thing. They have rebellion without repentance. Some people are rebellious in which they hear the word of God and they refuse to change. They resist growth. They oppose obedience. They're not repentant. Repentant is to see your sin, to turn from sin, and to turn to the Son. And as you're walking with Jesus, your old self, your desires, your nature grows strangely dim. That's repentance. People don't turn from their sin. They live in rebellion. They know who God is and they refuse to repent. They oppose obedience and they have faith that does not work. It's dead faith. It's demonic faith. It's not saving faith. It's a counterfeit. So hearing all of this, some of you might be very discouraged. You're like, oh no, what do I... I do. I've been sitting in church my entire life and I've never heard this. I've never experienced this. I've never encountered this. I thought I did enough. Listen, you can sit in church, be born in the church, be raised in the church, go to Sunday school in the church, get married in the church. You can even have your funeral in the church, close your eyes and still wake up in hell. Just because you're in church does not mean you're in Christ. There is a difference. Now, in Christ, we will be in the church because we are the church, but just because you go to church does not mean you are necessarily in Christ. And some of you can hear this, and you can start to get very discouraged. I thought my good works was enough. I thought if I followed the rules, if I thought I did all the things, I thought if I were the person that they told me to be, then I would be enough. Raise my hand, pray a prayer, walk an aisle, get baptized. Shouldn't that be enough? And others of you, you're hearing this, and you're like, this is actually very encouraging. I, I'm, I'm glad because I, I've been wondering this for years because whenever I read the Bible or I hear people talk about Jesus, it doesn't line up with what I see in the church. And I always wondered how, how the message of Jesus can be so bold and so, so powerful and the church is so dead and lifeless and it, it never made any sense. But now it finally makes sense to me because the people my entire life weren't actually really Christians. That makes sense to me. And so now you have this amazing opportunity to be the Christian that nobody showed you. You've been given this opportunity to have this new faith. So what does this new faith look like? If we've seen the counterfeits, what does is, what is the authentic faith look like? James is going to go in and he's going to give us two examples, illustrations of what a, what a true faith, a saving faith actually looks like. And here's, here's what James says. <clears throat> James says in verse 20. Do you want to be shown? Yes, please show me. Right? You've ripped me open bare. I don't know what's happening next. Please show me what this true, saving, genuine faith actually looks like. And James says, you foolish person. Do you notice the shift in the language that's happening here? Listen to the shift in the language. In the beginning, James calls this man a brother. He says, my brothers, sisters, family, people, right? God's people. Not anymore. This person sat in the church and they weren't saved. The shift of the language is very important. He says, you foolish person. You've been sitting in these pews for years and you still don't get it. You foolish person. That faith apart from works is useless. And so he's really going to drive this home and bring it all to a point. He's going to use two illustrations so that way we can see what this true faith looks like. And he's going to reference Abraham and Rahab. And he's going to say true faith, saving faith is it's a dynamic faith. The word dynamic means 
progressing, that it's changing, it's life-altering, legacy-leaving, full-throat, full-hearted, fully passionate, continually overflowing into every aspect of our life. It's a dynamic faith. It lives, it breathes, it moves. It's real. It's progressing and changing. And he's going to read to us two stories, one from Abraham and one from the woman named Rahab. So here's Abraham's story. Was not Abraham our father, father Abraham? Had many sons. You're right. Okay, good. Um, just see if y'all still with me. If you know the song, Father Abraham. Justified by his works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that the faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. So he starts with Abraham's story. Now, some of you guys know who Abraham was. He was this towering, prolific figure of the Old Testament. He was the patriarch, one of the founders of the, 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 the nation of Israel. He's the father of the nation of Israel. And so he starts by saying Abraham. And some of you are listening, and you're like, I'm not Abraham, right? I'm definitely not this great big patriarch. James says, okay, if you're not a patriarch, maybe you're a prostitute. Let's see what he says next about Rahab, who is a prostitute. Listen, two totally different ends of the spectrum. Okay, some people are like, I'm like Abraham. And other people are like, no, I'm definitely not like Abraham. I want you to see the totally different ends of the spectrum that he's covering. So he says, let me tell you Rahab's story. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So he gives us these two figures in the Old Testament. Now, I don't want to assume anything because I know a lot of people here are new Christians and, and young in faith and starting to read your Bible for the first time. And so I don't want to assume just to jump into the story. So, so let me tell you Abraham's story. In Sunday school, we teach Abraham's story. and We kind of get it a little wrong, a little right, but a little wrong. Abraham was not a righteous person to begin with. Abraham was a pagan, worshiping false gods made out of wood out in the country. He was a pagan. He was far from God. And then Abraham found favor from God. And that word favor is literally the Old Testament word for grace, that God gave grace to Abraham and it changed Abraham's life. And here's how we can know it changed it, because Abraham began to obey the Lord. And that God said, Abraham, I want you to move. I want you to step out. I want you to go walk, basically. I want you to move. And Abraham was like, well, where? God's like, I'm not going to tell you. I'll let you know when you get there. So Abraham packed up his whole family and then moved. And the Lord said, you're good. This is where I want you at. And I'm going to give you a blessing. I'm going to make a promise to you that because of your obedience, you're going to be the father of a nation. And the whole world is going to be blessed because of you. The only problem was, is that Abraham's 100 years old and his wife Sarah is 90. And Abraham's like, God, I don't know if you took a biology class, but that's not how this works. And so God's like, I'm going to make a promise and I'm going to keep my promise. And then by a miracle, his wife Sarah conceived and they gave birth to a son named Isaac. And Isaac was Abraham's love. Everything Abraham loved was in Isaac. And he, he loved him almost to the point to where possibly he loved Isaac more than God. So God wanted to test his faith. And he said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your only son, Isaac. I want you to take him up to the mountain, and I want you to make a sacrifice, a sacrifice of your son. And some people, right now you're listening, you're like, that sounds horrible. We'll figure it out in a sec. But let me tell you this. Why would God test your faith? Because a faith that has not been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. 
And so God puts Abraham to the test. Abraham wakes up that morning and he gets Isaac and he says, okay, we're going to have to go make a sacrifice. And Isaac said, well, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham's response was, the Lord will provide. Let it be so. So they loaded up all the wood, they, they got together and they walked up the side of the mountain and Isaac's carrying the wood on his back and asks Abraham again, where is the sacrifice? And God responds, the Lord will provide. And so they go up to the top and the sacrifice still isn't there and Moses, I mean, and Abraham knows the entire time. Can you imagine what is going through his mind right now? Can you imagine the way he's feeling, the thoughts, the emotions? He knows he's about to sacrifice his son, but Isaac, he's not in on it. He doesn't know, and they get to the top, and the sacrifice still isn't there. It begins to kind of click for Isaac. He's the sacrifice. So, they, so he, Abraham says, son, you're the sacrifice. So Isaac climbs on top of the altar. They tie him down. They put the wood there. And Abraham grabs the knife, and he goes to kill his son. And then the angel of the Lord stops him. He says, don't do it. Don't do it. I'll provide a sacrifice. And there was a ram in the thicket. Took Isaac off the altar, put the ram, made the sacrifice. And then the Lord said, I too will send my son one day. And my son also will be born of a miracle. And my son will also become a sacrifice. And just as Isaac carried wood up the side of this mountain, my son too will carry wood in the form of a cross. And that he will be the perfect sacrifice. No more sacrifices for, the, for, for sins based upon your works. But my son will be the perfect sacrifice. And his work will atone all. And he will substitute himself in your place. And through his death, many will be saved. It's all prototypical of the gospel of Jesus. Some of you right now, you're, you're thinking, that's a beautiful story, but I'm definitely not Abraham. I don't have that type of faith. I can't step out in that sort of obedience. God wouldn't ask that much out of me. And then he says, well, let's consider a woman named Rahab. Rahab, not a patriarch, but instead Rahab's a prostitute. And you can find Rahab's story in Judges chapter 7. And so Rahab's story is that God's people, several years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's people were in prison in the nation of Egypt. And then they, set, they were set free and they wandered through the wilderness. And then they were going to the promised land and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And another generation went by. And then you had two leaders, Joshua and Caleb, and they were going to the promised land. The only problem before their promised land was that there was a city, a wicked city named Jericho, and they needed to conquer that city. And so they sent out spies to do some recon, and they go into the city, and they start scouting it out. But the only problem is, is the guards, they find them. And so they want to capture them. They want to kill them. And so they run, and they hide. And they ran into a woman's house named Rahab. And they go into Rahab's house, and God's people show up, and they tell her all about the things that the Lord has done, and all the ways that the Lord has delivered them, and that God will save her if they, she trusts them, and she believes, and she encounters God's people, and it's evident because her life began to change, and she did something. She risked something, and she stepped out, and she hid these spies. So when the guards came, she lied to them and said they went out the other way. Then the spies went out the window. They hung a scarlet thread out the window, and when they came back to seize the city, all the walls fell down except for Rahab's house, and that Rahab and her family was spared because she was willing to step out in her faith. Now, some of you, you, you hear this and you're like, you're like, what, 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 is this, what does this mean, right? How does this even apply to any of this? Let me, let me show you. What would happen if Abraham was like, nah, I'm good. Thanks, God. Thanks for the whole 
favor thing. I appreciate that, but I'm not going to do anything. That seems like a, all that work stuff. All that work stuff seems like a lot of work, right? No, thank you. I'm not going to do that. What would happen if Rahab was like, I believe, go in peace. What would happen to God's people if Rahab didn't act on her faith? What would happen if Moses didn't step out in his faith? What would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. Abraham, Abraham wouldn't have had Isaac, and Isaac wouldn't have had Jacob, and they wouldn't have birthed the nation of Israel. That would have, that would have moved God's people, and then several generations go by, and they're, they're set free, and they begin to grow, and then a man named Salmon marries a woman named Rahab. And Abraham's great-great-granddaughter is now married into the family, and Rahab marries Salmon, and they have a son named Boaz, and then Boaz meets a woman named Ruth. And then Ruth is this beautiful love story that happens in the Old Testament. And it's a great picture of our Redeemer. And, and Boaz and Ruth have a son named Jesse. And then Jesse has a son named David. And then David becomes the king of the nation of Israel. And the lineage of Jesus comes from David. And so if Abraham wouldn't have stepped out in faith, you would not be here today. If Rahab would have not stepped out in faith, then we would not be saved today. None of this would exist if it wasn't for one single act of obedience. In your life, you never know what one act of obedience will do. That it could start a chain reaction that will change your family, that'll change your job, that'll change your life, that'll change your children. One step of obedience, one act of faith, if you put it to work, it could change lives. You never know what one act of faith is going to do. Now, some of you here, you're like, I'm more like Abraham. Okay, you believe in God. You know God. You trust God, and it's good. But right now, God is asking you to make a sacrifice. And there is something in your life that you're holding on to and valuing above God. And he's asking you to lay it down to test your faith. Maybe it's relational, maybe it's sexual, maybe it's financial, maybe it's vocational, maybe it's with your family. God's asking you to lay something down. Are you going to be willing to be obedient? Others of you, you feel more like Rahab. You feel like God could never love me, God could never save me, God could never use someone like me. I'm here to tell you today that if you step in faith, if you risk God can and God does and God will use you for anything and everything in ways that you never dreamed or imagined to be possible. If you will risk and obey and put your faith to work, you never know what God will do. Now, I wish I could end my sermon there because I think that would be a pretty good stopping point. But I have to go on because there's still some religious people who are having arguments in their head and I have to figure it out for you. Okay, all the rest of you are like, what are you even talking about? But others of you, you know this is a highly debated verse in the Bible. And you've been reading ahead and you're ready. And you've, you, you've, you know that, that people have debated over this. And people have argued and fought over this. And denominations have split over this. And you, you know. And so, so you're ready. And so we, we have to talk about this. So here's the big question. Is James wrong? Do James and Paul disagree? Because James here says, we are justified by our works. And you know this is a highly debated verse in the scripture. And so we need to talk about it. How many of you have ever been told that the Bible is filled with contradictions? Anyone? The Bible's filled with contradictions. Yeah, I remember as a new Christian, I was like, I wanted to tell everyone about Jesus. And I started a little Bible study and I would carry my Bible and I'd tell people and they're like, oh, the Bible is filled with contradictions. I'm like, oh, 
no, I have to figure this out. So I'd go home and I'd read my Bible and I'd, I'd study and I'd look and I'm like, oh, okay. So I'd come back to him and I said, hey, the Bible's filled with contradictions. Anybody heard that? Okay, here's one thing you could say. Next time someone says that, big statement, ask the simple question, where? If the Bible's filled with contradictions, why don't you just give me, give me one? Just give me one. Normally, like, uh, I, I don't know. It's, they're in the Bible. No, you're a contradiction because you've actually never read the Bible. Right? You're just regurgitating something that someone else said to you. Okay, so read the Bible. The Bible's filled with contradictions. Now, some people somewhere, some will say that this is the contradiction. The big contradiction is this. James and Paul disagree. So James says, we are justified by our works. Paul says something completely different. Okay, so let's go ahead and let's just read what, what, what Paul has to say. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Pull it up. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of, what's the word? Works. Not a result of works, so that no man may boast. So James says, justified by works. Paul says, not by works. Oh no, there's a contradiction. God must not be real. I must not be a Christian. Head explodes. Okay, step back. Figure this out. Before you freak out, let's say I am a doctor and have two patients. One in each room. I go to one room and I say, I say, you need to... You need to get up. You need to start running. You need to start exercising. You need to move. You need to do something. Go back. Go to the next room. Say, you need to sit down. You need to stop running. You need to stop exercising. You need to go on a vacation. Go back. Two different patients, two different diagnoses. Why? Because they're different. Okay, this person is obese, needs to lower their cholesterol, needs to lose some weight, this person broke their leg. Okay, he needs to sit down. He needs to stop running, stop exercising. Different people, different diagnoses. James and Paul are really saying the same thing. They're just ministering in two totally different contexts. James and Paul don't need to be reconciled because they're not at odds. They're actually really good friends. The book of Galatians tells us that James was Paul's pastor and that Paul would travel hundreds of miles just to learn from and sit under and spend time with James. See, different people different places need different things, but it's still the same message. So here's, here's Paul. Paul is a missionary church planter all across the ancient world. He's an, an apostle starting churches from scratch, just like this. And Paul ministers to Gentiles, people who are far from God, non-Christian, non-Jewish Gentiles. And the biggest fear that Gentiles had is that God won't save me unless I do something. And they, they want to know, what do I have to do to be saved? Do I need to Do I need to cut my hair? Do I need to tie 10%? Do I need to go here? Do I need to go to this temple? Do I need to go to this synagogue? Do I, do I need to read a certain translation of the Bible? Do I need to change my clothes? Do I need to change my diet? Can I eat ham sandwiches? Do I need to be circumcised? What do I need to do in order to be, to be saved? And Paul's like, sit down. Chill out. You're saved. Jesus loves you. You're good. Okay, did I lose my salvation? Paul's like, no, that's not how, okay. Sit down. You're fine. James, on the other hand, is writing to lazy, lukewarm Christians who have sat in the church for years and think because you know a Bible verse and you can string a prayer together that God expects nothing else out of you. And James is like, stop wasting our time. Get with it or get out. That's basically the message of James. See, Paul is saying, how do we become Christians? James is saying, here's how we behave as Christians. They're basically saying the same thing, and I'll show it to you, because when people read this section of Scripture, they tend to leave off verse 10. So we've got to read it all in context, because if you just pick and choose verses of the Bible and you take, it, take the text out of context, 
You're left with a con. See what I did there? It's a sham. Okay? So here's what it says. We'll read the whole thing. Here's what it says. For by grace, gift of God, favor, nothing you could do, unmerited, unwanted grace, that you have been saved from Satan, sin, hell, death in the grave, transformed through faith, to know, to trust, to believe. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works. You don't do anything to earn it. You can't brag about it. You can't boast about it. You can say, I saved myself, and I pulled myself up on my bootstraps, and I, and I made my own way, and I was a really good person. Paul's like, no, you're, you're not. That's not how we are saved, so that no one can boast. Grace through faith. But people tend to leave off verse 10. And here's what verse 10 says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, what's the word? Good works. You were made for good works. You were created for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Do you know that God has saved you for a purpose? Do you know that God has a plan for you? We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace. But because of this grace, we've got work to do. Do you know that God loves you and that God saves you for a purpose? And God has a greater plan for your life than you to fill a seat and have this dead, joyless, lifeless Christianity that can't overcome any pain, can't endure any suffering, and never changes your life. You know God has a greater plan for you than that? To grin and bear it? God has a greater will for you. He has good works that he's prepared just for you, predestined for you, before the foundations of the world that he made you to walk in. See, we don't work so that God will love us because he already has. And from God's love, we work. It changes who we are, how we see ourselves, and how we see the world. You hear this, you're inspired. Praise God. My greatest joy is seeing lives changed. It is. When people get this, this, this changes everything. Like when people get this, like whenever, whenever a young gal, like she gets saved and she starts reading her Bible and her face lights up as she's, as she's sitting there and she's hearing God's word and that's what it's all about. Whenever, whenever a young man goes to our grow class and he sits there and on week three, he realizes God saved me for a better reason than just working for a paycheck. That's what it's all about. When we're baptizing people and they're coming to faith and they're, they're stepping in the water and their families gathered around and they're going down and they're coming back up and they celebrate because their life has been changed. That's what it's all about. When, whenever a, a marriage is reconciled and whenever kids get saved and they drag their parents to church because they want to be a part of Redemption Kids, that's, that's what it's all about. Redemption, there's a lot of work for, for us to do. There's a lot of lives to be changed. There's a lot of work for us to do. And if I'm honest with you, there's a lot of joy that comes from being your pastor. So thank you for that. But if I could be your pastor for just a minute, I do have some concerns. Because I'm seeing a pattern in people's lives to where their character is not consistent with the calling Christ has for you. There are some people... I'm beginning to see that, and I'm not, I'm not talking about anything specific. I'm not looking at anyone. 
and I don't want to get into it. I'm not calling anyone out. But I'm seeing a pattern happen where you're going back to your old life. You're living in your old ways. You're proclaiming a faith you're not practicing. And people are watching. And I'm concerned, and you're concerned, and I didn't name you, I didn't say you, and there's not anyone particular. But this whole sermon, the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you, and he says it's you. He says, I'm talking to you, and I'm trying to get your attention. I want you to listen. Character is not consistent with the calling you have in Christ. I'm going to pray. And I don't really know where I'm going to go next, how we're going to close this out. We're going to bring our team forward, and they're going to pray with you again. And we're going to take communion, we're going to sing, and we're going to worship. I believe this is a day that the Lord is dealing with us. He dealt with me about it all week, and I believe he's speaking to you, to me, to us as a church. Because he does have good works for us to do, Redemption. He does have something great that he is calling us for. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 9.30 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption and we would love to meet you.